Good evening and welcome to Unbreak Your Health, the program about the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'm Alan Smith in Plano, Texas, author of Unbreak Your Health, the complete guide to complementary and alternative therapies, and this is July 17, 2008. Tonight our topic is osteopathic medicine, or osteopathy, and our special guest is Dr. Philip Slocum, Dean at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Slocum graduated from KCOM in 1976, then completed his residency training, internal medicine, and critical care medicine at the Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. He chaired the Department of Medicine at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine and was chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of North Texas Health Sciences in Fort Worth, just down the street from me here, before becoming dean at KCOM. He is a fellow in several major medical colleges and has done leading research on tuberculosis. His interests now revolve around medical education reform. I'd like to thank you, Dean Slocum, for joining me this evening. Well, thank you, Alan, and pleased to be invited to speak. First of all, congratulations on A.T. Still University, named once again one of the best graduate schools in America by U.S. News and World Report. Yes, we're very excited by that, particularly since uh, our tradition has been long and fast about training graduates who will ultimately end up in primary care in rural areas that are underserved. Now, osteopathic medicine, for those that aren't familiar, is really a unique form of American medical care that was developed back in 1874 by Dr. Andrew Taylor Still. But medicine back in those days was a little bit different than it uh, is today, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, back in the 1870s, the whole society was focused on science as being the great savior of everything, from engineering to religion to medicine to any aspect, to even social work. Science was considered the answer to everything. And at that time, the practitioners really only had a few therapies that they used in their arsenal, particularly throughout the Midwest, and those included foxglove, which is digitalis, uh, arsenic, strychnine, and mercury. In fact, mercury was still used as a medicinal agent up until the 1930s. There was an old saying that a nighttime with Venus meant a lifetime with mercury, which has to do with the treatment of syphilis. And, and I have to assume that uh, using something as toxic as mercury couldn't have a good effect to, the, to a sick patient to start with. Well, that was really the whole crux of the thing. You know, the, there's still a lot of debate of how effective is manipulative medicine, either osteopathic or chiropractic, in treating active disease. And we don't have a lot of scientific knowledge about that. But certainly one can imagine a time in the early 1900s, late 1800s, when there were no good pharmaceutical agents when patients were tremendously sick. And then in addition to that, our allopathic brethren would add to that the treatments uh, that we just described, which are all heavy metal poisonings that we all test for and look for on CSI TV programs. What really is osteopathy? Could you give me a, a, a simple definition as best you can? Well, I think probably the best definition was the definition that Max Gutenson and his colleague came up with in the 1950s because identity has been really one of the struggling points in osteopathy. And back then, they came up with the concept that um, osteopathy believes that the human body is a unified organism. It's not a group of individual organs that act independently of one another but they act in a, like a symphony, all in concert with one another. The second aspect was that the body tends to heal itself. Most of the time when you leave it alone, you will get better from almost everything. And then lastly was that the neuromusculoskeletal system was a key component to maintaining health, whether it's physical health or psychological health. 
And at the time when osteopathy was formed, there was nobody talking about the musculoskeletal system at all. And what Dr. Still uh, did in his 12 years of independent research was focus on this uh, mass of the neuromusculoskeletal system that was going unresearched and unstudied, and yet it made up more than 70% of the body mass. Which obviously begs the question, you know, this was long overdue at that point in time, and it's fortunate that Dr. Still began to look at that as, as a way to help the body heal itself. Uh, yes, yes, it is, and we, we anticipate that with ongoing studies, we'll be able to document in in some scientific way that that manipulative therapy is therapeutic in a, a variety of, of medical conditions. We have some evidence, although, again, I think uh, if one was critical, one could certainly say it's not solid uh, evidence, but certainly some evidence suggesting that at least in elderly pa- people, patients who are treated with osteopathic manipulative therapy who have pneumonia in conjunction with their antibiotics have better outcomes than those who receive a sham treatment. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dean Slocum, osteopathy also treats patients as a whole person, that they're not just, as you said, you know, a collection of individual systems, but the interactions of the body and the mind and the spirit need to be treated holistically uh, as, yes, as a whole that, functioning system. Yes, that's very true. In fact, there was a study that was done by a group of MDs from North Carolina that was published in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association, oh, probably six, seven years ago, which they went to the state of Maine and they uh, recorded the interviews between patients and their doctors, and they segregated the doctors between between being MDs or DOs. Um, and then what they did is they typed the transcript out, and they took out all the identifiers, so they didn't know who the patients were or who the doctors were. They gave the um, uh, with the three principles that I've outlined to blinded people and asked them to read the transcripts and just see how they interacted blindly with patients. And what they found out was that you could identify who the osteopaths were versus who the MDs were by how they interacted, how they communicated with their patients. And again, it's something that we wish we understood more about because we certainly want to encourage that. And I certainly hear anecdotally in all of my travels when I deal with patients uh, in a variety of medical institutions that they actually notice a difference. Uh, It may be that there is a a DO world specialist treating breast cancer in pregnant patients down at MD Anderson, um, and people will come back and say, you know, I just knew that that person was a DO because of how he treated me. And I've heard many people speak about the tremendous increase in popularity in complementary and alternative medicine being to a large degree exactly because of that factor, that uh, the practitioners uh, and the DOs take the time to treat them as as people. Absolutely. And we see that over and over again. And, and oftentimes the issue of being a DO is, is often overlooked in the popular press. Uh, a couple of years ago with Time Magazine, they talked about the hero MD in Afghanistan or Iraq, and he actually was a DO who was a graduate, I believe, of the <laughs> Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine. So but there's oftentimes confusion in the lay press about what's an MD and what's a DO. Well, I guess that leads me to my next question. The What are the differences between an MD and a DO? Well, that's even harder to explain because so many times we are trained in our third and fourth year in, and also in our graduate years with MD physicians. 
And so very often it is hard to see a difference because not all DOs do manipulation. And um, and there now is a growing group of MDs who are starting to do manipulation. So I think we have to go back to uh, what we do know about it and that there is a difference in probably how we select our students and the, and the population that we select from. We generally uh, also like to take people who are from a prior career, not just those that are just straight out of high school, straight out of college, but also in, want to go into medical school, but also people who have done other things in life. Uh, when I was a medical student, uh, we had in my class a person who had his Ph.D. in metallurgy. We had a veterinarian. We had a farmer. Uh, we had uh, several people who had been medics in Vietnam. Uh, and so we had people who had world experiences and who were more mature and brought a whole different characteristic to the entire class. So I think sometimes it starts with that versus having a group of 22-year-olds who are all eager to become physicians. Uh, it's really hard to define exactly what is the difference, but oftentimes people know it when they when they do when they see the difference. One of the points that I know from uh, my research in my book that confuses a lot of people is that uh, they somehow seem to think that DOs aren't real doctors, and and it surprises them in many cases that DOs are in fact you know, fully licensed doctors and can treat in all 50 states. Absolutely. DEOs actually represent about 6% of the U.S. physician population, and they represent 15% of all physicians who practice in small towns and rural areas, and they represent 8% of all military physicians. In fact, DEOs have been uh, the Surgeon General of the military forces. Uh, DEOs are in almost every single major medical school in the country, in fact, one of our alumni is the founder of vascular medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Uh, so we have uh, DOs who do, many DOs who go on recognized and do what we really hope for them to do, which are be primary care physicians for the hurting humanity in rural America. But we also have DOs who, who do that big academic climb that so many people rate medical schools for. So, yes, we are fully licensed. We do surgeries, uh, everything from uh, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, cardiovascular. When I was at University of North Texas Health Science Center, we had a very active neurosurgery program and heart program. We did burn therapy. We had hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, yes, we were a very active group, and it was uh, – it was, uh, it, it's a fully licensed uh, uh, form of practice, and uh, we're very proud of it. Listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love my new book. The second edition of How to Unbreak Your Health is your map to the world of complementary and alternative therapies. It features a new user-friendly format and 339 new and updated listings in 150 different categories. And you can get it on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. You mentioned the manual manipulation earlier. Osteopathy, many people consider the manual manipulation or, or OMT or OMN as it's called one of the real key facets. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what that entails? Yes, actually that's a very long and detailed study of the structure of the human body. Uh, it starts with the structure of the skeletal system, but that's only one aspect. They also study intently how the muscles and tendons and ligaments all interact how the blood supply to all these areas function and how the nerve supply function. And to uh, some extent, they also talk about the internal organs 
Um, and so it's been a, a very long, intense study. Uh, as you can imagine, it's very creative. Uh, there are lots and lots of people who bring different techniques in. And so medical students in our program spend many hours uh, studying uh, the detailed anatomy of the spine and the, and the support structures to the spine and to the body. But then you also learn of all the various techniques that they can use to improve health and function through manipulation. Oftentimes people think about manipulation and they think of what we call high-velocity uh, manipulation, high-velocity, low-amplitude man manipulation, the old crackum type of stuff that most people think about. But there's all sorts of things such as muscle energy and fascial release and uh, just, uh, the list just goes on and on of all the various types of techniques that students have to master before they can graduate. And that's one of the key issues uh, to help the body heal itself. Uh, I've heard it mentioned to me that DOs have been advising their patients that the best drugs are the body's own immune system for more than 100 years, uh, obviously long before it was fashionable. So uh, this is really all about helping the body heal itself. It really is. And, you know, I think if people were to actually look very critically about some of the drugs that we take so commonly, and I'll I'll pick on the antidepressants because they're the easiest, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so it makes it easy to blame those folks for a thing. <laughs> but, but you know, you look at you look at the issue about how Prozac or those type of drugs help with antidepression, and at least how I read the literature, it helps about 60% of the people who are depressed. But then you figure out that uh, placebo is how about 30% of the people, 30% of the patients who are depressed. Well, then the effectiveness is about one in three, really that get helped by the actual drug. Well, I guess if it's your one of the three that it helps you, that's great. But there are a lot of reasons why people are depressed, and not all of them I, I maintain are necessarily related to uh, just a biochemical thing that they're born with. I think there's a lot of uh, psychological and social stresses that people face that ultimately makes them depressed. And there are so many other... Yeah, and oftentimes when you get to the root cause, and the root cause of anything is what we're all searching for, once you fix that root cause, then people will ultimately get better. And there are so many other non-pharmaceutical therapies available. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we really don't even understand complementary and alternative medicine very well at all, and it's really wrong of the mainstream medical profession just to say it doesn't work. Well, why doesn't it work? Maybe people haven't looked at it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. And there, there are two issues there, that people haven't looked at it or it really doesn't work. And so that's one of the problems that we have with mainstream medicine very often is that if they haven't particularly looked at it, well, then it's uh, not to be authenticated, and therefore it's automatically a failure and insufficient. Um, but the good news is that doctor of osteopathy can offer a variety of non-invasive healing treatments that aren't even available from the uh, conventional or mainstream doctors. Absolutely, and at least we hope that they keep an open mind to all forms of practitioners out there. That's one of the things that KCOM we try to emphasize, is that we want everybody to keep an open mind to all kinds of practitioners that are out there and to validate those that are out there practicing. Can osteopathy be used on any type of health problem, even something as simple as an ear infection or sinus problem? Well, actually, yes. That's actually some of the other literature that's coming out, particularly in children. Uh, we certainly know that most children probably don't need antibiotics for ear infection and certainly not for sinus infections very often. Um, but there are some uh, studies in cranial manipulation in children in particular 
that show that not only can you sort of fix the ear infection, but you can also, once you straighten out the cranial problems, prevent ear infections from reoccurring in the future. And again, that, that there's some small studies that suggest that, and it's not, you know, um, you know, Moses type printed on the tablets, but that's certainly very, very strong uh, evidence that's out there, and certainly a number of people believe that. Do many DOs practice family medicine or, or as a general practitioner? Uh, yes, a very high percentage do compared to what normally happens. Um, I would think that if you looked at all of our graduates, when you include the primary care fields of family medicine, internal medicine, obstetrics, and pediatrics, 65% uh, of DOs practice in those fields. Um, closer to 50% practice in family medicine. Which is substantially higher than uh, mainstream doctors. Correct. Because. And right now we have close to 55,000 osteopathic physicians practicing in the United States right now. And by the year 2020, we have an expectation that there will be at least 100,000 osteopathic physicians practicing in the United States. Wonderful. You we, account for, we account for approximately 100 million patient visits uh, a year currently. That's wonderful. You had mentioned earlier that a lot of DOs seem to end up practicing in rural environments in small towns. Yes. Is, is there a reason for that, or is, is it just there a more comfortable fit for them? Well, I think probably a, a couple of reasons. Number one, many of our medical schools are rurally located. Uh, Kirksville started off, obviously, in a very rural area. It's a, it's a small city of about 17,000 right now. Um, and I think the other reason is that we attract people from other rural areas who feel more comfortable coming here to go through our schools. We used to have a rural clinic, clinic program in Kirksville that would get, allow students to get more comfortable in being in rural areas, and that attracted a number of people also. Um, and I think that hopefully with uh, new changes in telemedicine and legislation that we're going to start to relook at starting that rural clinic program again so that we can have better supervision than we did in the old days and hopefully start to do that again, start to get more people interested in going to underserved areas of America. With 55,000 practicing DOs in America today, and obviously osteopathy is growing more popular all the time, are you a little surprised that the field isn't better understood and more appreciated uh, than it is right now? Yeah, actually, I'm very, very surprised. Uh, my, my grandparents were early osteopathic physicians who influenced me to come to an osteopathic school versus going to an MD school. In fact, I always tell the story, my grandfather was the soloist at Dr. Still's funeral here in Kirksville when he was, <laughs> when he was here in 1917. So that even tells you how old I am. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I am still very, very confused and surprised at the number of people who, who do not appreciate the value of osteopathic medicine or even understand it. When I was a fellow on one lonely night, I remember a patient who had gone to the osteopathic hospital of Maine, and uh, he uh, was the uh, owner of a fairly large lumber company in the, in the Portland area, and and the osteopathic physicians had done a wonderful job of saving him from an asthma attack, and he insisted on being transferred to Maine Med. And so when he came to Maine Med, we uh, got him disconnected from the ventilator and got the tubes out and everything. And he looked at me and grabbed my lapel, and he said, thank you for saving me from those osteopaths. And I happened to pull back a little bit and show him my name tag, and I said, well, there's just an osteopath between you and death for the next six hours. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you're everywhere. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. And, and that's that good news, actually. Yeah, right. That was good news. That's right. Well, so, I, yes, absolutely. That, so that's a, uh, 
Yeah, it, it's very surprising how come uh, so few people understand osteopathy and osteopathic medicine. Well, hopefully we can fill in a few of those gaps for people in oh, the world. Oh, absolutely. It's a great program. And for those people who don't uh, appreciate the fact that Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine was actually founded in 1892, and it's the first school of osteopathic medicine in America. And well, in the entire world, actually. And now schools are starting in England and throughout Europe. And I just heard a little while ago they're starting in Portugal, Argentina, and Brazil. Wonderful. And you're actually now part of A.T. Still University as of yes. 2004, right? Correct. Wonderful. Yeah. And A.T. Still University is a growing university. We have the only dental school in Arizona. Uh, we also have the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona, which is one of two osteopathic schools, and there's only one MD school in Arizona. Um, and uh, we are doing novel things and innovative things in medical education. Um, and uh, we have a great online school in the School of Health Management, and we have a wonderful allied health science school out in Arizona, the Arizona School of Health Sciences. And if the listeners have any questions about AT Still University, they can go to your website at www.atsu.edu, correct? Absolutely. Or they can email me at pslocum at atsu.edu, and I'll be glad to forward them any information I can. Dean Slocum, I thank you for taking the time to be with me this evening to talk about osteopathy. Alan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And you've been listening to the podcast edition of Unbreak Your Health, discovering the world of hope and health, known as complementary and alternative medicine. We'll be back on July 24th on our new weekly schedule, and you can learn more about Dr. Slocum and ATSU by visiting the podcast page at unbreakyourhealth.com. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send your questions and comments to info at unbreakyourhealth.com. This program is a joint production of Unbreak Your Health and Loving Healing Press. Thank you for listening. I'm Alan Smith, and I look forward to being with you again soon.